Father Almighty, the success or failure of what follows depends entirely on your ability to speak that still small voice into our hearts. So we plead that you would please do so, that you would enable us to hear your voice, uh, not uh, merely through the words of this sermon, but through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The 20th century English novelist and also a great Christian apologist, G.K. Chesterton, famously said this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. I'm sure most of us can relate to that. I'm sure that the prophet Elijah in today's scripture would be able to relate. There are few portraits in scripture of the pain, the sorrow, the difficulty that often accompany faithful Christian living more poignant than that of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. And today's sermon is going to focus on three challenges to faithful living that Elijah himself faced, which we also face today. First, the challenge of our emotions. Second, the challenge of our enemy. And third, the challenge of our expectations. First, some background. The nation of Israel at this point is split in two between the northern kingdom, which retains the name Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. Unlike in the southern kingdom, where you would still occasionally have some good and faithful kings, all of the kings of the northern kingdom were awful. And perhaps none more so than King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Jezebel was a pagan who worshipped many gods, but especially the god Baal. And with her husband's consent, she implemented a plan to completely eliminate worship of the God of Israel. And in fact, to murder faithful people and prophets who did worship God. To say the least, if you're a prophet like Elijah, who's called by God to minister to the northern kingdom when Ahab was king, well, you know you've got your work cut out for you. Through Elijah's prophetic word, in response to the unfaithfulness of Ahab and Jezebel, God sent a famine on the land of Israel. No rainfall for three years. But by the end of the previous chapter, chapter 18, God ends the famine. But it only happened after Elijah had a dramatic confrontation with 450 prophets of Baal. And he proves that Baal and these prophets are utterly powerless. Through Elijah, God sent fire down from the sky and completely consumed an altar that he had prepared. And this terrifies the people of Israel, so much so that they fall on their faces in repentance and say, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah administered capital punishment to these 
unfaithful and, and blasphemous um, prophets in Israel. So that's where we are at the beginning of chapter 19. Look at verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow. And when Elijah got this word, see verse 3, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life. He went, he went way down south to Beersheba, which is in the southernmost part of the southern kingdom of Judah, which remember, remember is a different country entirely. But this speaks to how desperate Elijah was to escape Jezebel's clutches. To say the least, Elijah was emotional. Listen, just last week, my son Townsend and I went to Riley Moore Falls near Westminster, which is one of the great treasures of living in this part of the country. It is a lovely waterfall and swimming hole. I've been there a couple of times, but I was somewhat reluctant to go with Townsend to Riley Moore because I know Townsend. He's been to this waterfall many times with his friends, and he's much, much braver than I am. And I felt confident that Townsend would want to climb up scary rocks and jump from high places and expect me to do the same. And I was pretty sure if I did those things, I would break my neck, I would kill myself, I would drown. And some of you were like, Pastor Brent, didn't you, haven't you recently taken up the hobby of skateboarding? And I'm, and I have. But, but I don't mind falling and breaking bones on solid ground. I think it's the water that scares me a little. Anyway, Townsend was an excellent guide and very patient. There were a couple of places where uh, we climbed up on steep rocks and walked across narrow ledges. And at first I was like, uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. And Townsend said, Dad, look. You have a foothold right here, so just put your foot right here and then put your foot right there. At one point, I was crawling in fear very cautiously along this narrow path. And Townsend's like, you can just walk here, Dad, normally. Just put one foot in front of the other. You'll be fine. In other words, it was as if he were saying, Dad, this is just walking. You know how to do this. You've done this before. Don't be afraid. You'll be fine. And gosh, when we read about Elijah's response to Jezebel's message. I'm going to kill you by this time tomorrow. I want to say something similar to him. Elijah, you've done this before. You've been in this situation before. Don't be afraid. You'll be fine just like you were fine before. I want to say, Elijah, you of all people should know that if God can rain fire down from heaven as you saw him do just a couple of days ago, among many other miraculous things you've seen God do in your ministry, you know you have nothing to be afraid of here. After all, you stood up to Jezebel's husband Ahab and those 450 prophets, all of whom wanted you dead, yet through the power of God, they were no match for you. Through the strength 
strength that God gave you, you took all of them on and you won. So why are you worried about this one person, Jezebel? You know how to do this. You've done it before. But the reason I struggled to do what Townsend wanted me to do at Riley Moore and the reason Elijah struggled to do what God was asking him to do here was our emotions. Fear in this case. Take fear out of the equation and Elijah and myself would have been just fine. And then there's another powerful emotion, perhaps even more debilitating, that we see, for example, in verse 4. After being on the run for a full day, Elijah prays this prayer. It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Do, do, do you know what that emotion is? Of course you do. It's depression. And it sounds like Elijah had a severe case of it too. I am speaking right now to some people here this morning who, like Elijah, struggle with depression, who, like Elijah, sometimes feel like dying, and who have even been tempted to commit suicide. You feel like you have no control over this dreadful and potentially deadful, uh, deadly uh, disorder. And I'm aware that some preachers, too many in fact, are willing to say something like this. You've got a spiritual problem. That's why you're depressed. It's because of some sin or it's because you've done something wrong or it's because you don't have enough faith. I remember Sheila Walsh, the contemporary Christian singer from the 80s who became the co-host of the 700 Club. She has clinical depression and she used to be too afraid to admit this fact to other Christians and certainly to her television audience because she worried about being judged by them. She worried that they would blame some sin, you know, for this problem or a lack of faith. The Bible doesn't do this. Remember? Remember the case of the man born blind in John chapter 9. Jesus' disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born this way? And Jesus, of course, says, neither. That, that their sin is not the reason uh, that this man was born blind. And listen, the same is true for Elijah and his depression. Notice, God does not scold Elijah if only you had more faith and stopped doubting and stopped sinning, then you wouldn't be feeling like this. No, the first thing God does for Elijah is to send him an angel to do what? To feed him, to give him water to drink. And what else? Twice it says the angel touched Elijah. I'm sure this was a healing touch for him. God knows that Elijah needs that touch. He needs that companionship. He needs to know that he's not alone in this crisis. Do you ever just need a hug? Of course you do. And I believe that's what this angel does for Elijah. God knows that a part of Elijah's problem is physical, biological. It's in his body. He's hungry and thirsty. He's exhausted. He's emotionally spent. He's isolated too. These are, this is a deadly combination. So God first takes care of these physical needs. There's a message there for us when we're dealing with emotions like depression and anxiety. As with Elijah, 
a part of the problem could be physical and biological. And so by all means, if you struggle to get over your depression or anxiety, talk to, talk to a doctor that you trust. It's perfectly okay to seek medical intervention. And if your doctor in his or her wisdom thinks that medical intervention might help, that's good. Consider that this medical intervention is one part of the way that God heals you. I hope that's clear. Because in Elijah's case, he also needs some necessary spiritual healing. And I want to talk about that for a moment. In addition to food, water, and companionship, what else does Elijah need? He needs sleep. So he slows down long enough to sleep. He sleeps twice in these verses. Elijah rests perhaps for the first time in days, after which he's better able to cope with everything else that he needs to do. I, I was listening to a sermon not long ago by one of my favorite preachers, Pastor Steve Brown. and He's so honest about his own sins, his own shortcomings, his own struggles. It's refreshing to me. I don't remember what passage of scripture he was preaching on, something from the Gospels, but he complained in the sermon about, the, about how the Lord was really stepping on his toes in this scripture. Because whatever Jesus was warning against was something that Brown himself struggled with. Then he said in that deep voice of his, I, I wish Jesus talked more about the sin of sloth or laziness, because I don't have that problem at all. I'm a workaholic. I work all the time. And he said this with irony, because he knew that being a workaholic wasn't any less sinful than whatever sin Jesus was talking about. But he also knew that we pastors are, are happy to admit from the pulpit that we are workaholics because we know that no one in the congregation will say boo. I mean, sure, we give lip service to the sin of workaholism, but we don't really mean it. We secretly think it's a virtue, not a vice. I mean, if you're in a job interview and your potential employer asks you, what is your biggest weakness, just say, I'm a workaholic, and they'll be like, great, how soon can you start? Because employers love having workaholics for employees. And guess what? Churches love having workaholics for pastors. And with smartphones in our pockets and at our fingertips 24-7, workaholism is worse than ever. Um, Work just has a way of constantly following us around. Weekends, vacations, all hours of the day or night. Who cares, we say, it might be an emergency. But I'm sorry if we are workaholics and we're not resting and taking care of ourselves and we're not enjoying recreation, we are doing nothing less than breaking the fourth commandment about Sabbath rest. That's a serious sin. In the Old Testament, God gave people the death penalty for breaking the Sabbath. And we say, oh, that's so harsh. 
Why does God do that? But listen, you know as well as I do that if God didn't give the death penalty for that, the ancient people of Israel would have ignored the fourth commandment entirely, just as we would, just as we do, because we think it's not really that important to take Sabbath rest. How many sermons have you heard on the topic after all? Come to think of it, how many sermons have I preached on that topic? The good news, of course, is that Christ has fulfilled the law for us, including the fourth commandment. We are set free from the law. Christ even suffered and died for our disobedience to the law. But God gave us the fourth commandment because he knows we need Sabbath rest. God did not create us to work and work and work and go and go and go. And it's no secret. We've got medical bills to prove that God did not create us to live this way. And surely part of the reason that we are often in emotional turmoil and surely part of the reason part of the reason elijah is in emotional term turmoil is his failure to take sabbath rest and that brothers and sisters that failure to take sabbath rest is a, a, a spiritual problem why because in failing to rest it's as if we're telling God something like this. God, I don't trust that you know how to run the universe without me. My work is an indispensable part of your plans for this world, and I don't want you to fail, God. So for your sake, Lord, I can't afford to rest right now. I'm sure you see the problem with that. Elijah must have felt a little bit like that. Look at verse 10 and 14. He tells God something like this. I'm the only one left and they're out to kill me too. And if they kill me, God, what hope is there for Israel? There won't be anyone left to accomplish all that needs to be accomplished. You can't do this without me, God. And they're out to get me. What are you going to do if they kill me? Everything's going to fall apart. Elijah believed that the weight of the world was on his shoulders. And of course, God reminds him and us in his word that this is not true. Verse 18, contrary to what you think, Elijah, there are 7,000 people right now in the northern kingdom of Israel with all of its evil, with all of its idolatry, 7,000 who haven't yet bowed their knee to Baal. And trust me, God says, I'm going to take care of this problem with Ahab and Jezebel and all these idolaters using an Israelite named Jehu and a Syrian king named Hazael, I'm going to make sure that they take care of that problem with a sword. Because you see, I'm in control here, Elijah. Trust me. Do we ever feel as if we have the weight of the world on our shoulders? We don't. We can afford to take Sabbath rest. We need it. And that's point number one, how to deal with our emotions. You know what's interesting? Look at verse 2. Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah. So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as uh, the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. One of them are all these dead prophets. 
if the queen was able to send a messenger to Elijah telling him that she's going to kill him by this time tomorrow, then that means she could have just as easily have sent an assassin to do the job today, right? Why send a messenger to warn him in the first place? Wouldn't that just give Elijah a better chance of escaping and surviving? Was Jezebel such an evil genius that she knew she could do far worse than just to kill Elijah? After all, if she killed him, he'd go straight to heaven to be with the Lord, which wouldn't be too bad for him. But no, she seemed to know that she could harm Elijah far worse by killing his spirit, which is what she tried to do, and she very nearly succeeded. How did she know Elijah would respond this way? I mean, she heard about what happened with these prophets of Baal. If God can send a, a rain fire down from heaven and, 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 and consume an altar, what's making her think that God couldn't send fire down from heaven and consume her? Uh, and this brings us to point number two, another challenge to faithful Christian living in addition to our emotions is our enemy. See, Elijah had an enemy far craftier than Jezebel. And this enemy knows how to harm us, not just physically, but even worse, to harm us spiritually. Our ultimate enemy knows precisely what our Achilles heel is. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our soft spots. He knows the places where we're most vulnerable. And that's precisely where he attacks. One commentator wondered aloud why Elijah doesn't seem to be afraid of King Ahab at all, and yet he seems to be terrified of his wife. We don't know the answer. I'm sure there are interesting psychological reasons. Regardless, Elijah's enemy knows all about this fear, and he exploits it. And this enemy, of course, is the devil, Satan. As the Apostle Paul warns us in Ephesians 6.12, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Which was an ironic thing for Paul to say, because from a worldly perspective, Paul seemed to be fighting against flesh and blood enemies all the time. In fact, Paul describes some of these enemies in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. These enemies beat Paul with rods on many occasions. They whipped Paul 39 times on many occasions. One time they stoned him and left him for dead. They constantly uh, persecuted him. They constantly slandered him. They threw him in prison multiple times. And we know from history that ultimately Paul would be beheaded while he was in prison. But no, Paul says, none of these flesh and blood enemies count for anything because our ultimate enemy, the one who's working behind the scenes and pulling strings, that's the devil and all the spiritual forces of evil that are aligned with him. Satan is our real enemy, our ultimate enemy. But if that's the case, what can we do about it? Look at verse 16. God asks Elijah to anoint his successor. Confusingly, Elijah's 
successor has a very similar name. <laughs> it's Elisha. Elisha prayed that he could have a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And God answered that prayer and said, yes. So we see Elisha in 2 Kings accomplish even more powerful things than his predecessor. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha was in a very similar situation with a powerful king. Not the king of Israel this time, but Israel's enemy, Syria. The king of Syria would plan an attack against Israel, and God would reveal the details of that plan to Elisha, who would then in turn share this intelligence with the king of Israel, so the king would be prepared to thwart each and every attack. This happened many times before the king of Syria realized that the problem was this prophet in Israel named Elisha. So he sends an army to go and apprehend or even kill the prophet. Elisha's servant finds out about it. And listen to what 2 Kings 6, 15 to 17 says. When the servant of the man of God, that is Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So the, so, and then Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, and by the way, that great movie, Chariots of Fire, gets its title from that verse. Compare and contrast Elisha's response to the king who's out to kill him with Elijah's response to Jezebel. Elisha seems serene and chill and completely unbothered. Elisha doesn't seem like someone who struggles to find Sabbath rest. What's the difference? Elisha, unlike Elijah, knew that there was an unseen reality that was far greater than anything he could see or feel or hear. Even though he had a visible enemy in the king of Syria and Syria's army, and even though he had an invisible enemy in the devil behind the scenes and pulling strings, these enemies were no match for God and the angelic forces that God had lined up with him against his enemies. Elisha knew that knew, he knew this, and that gave him great peace of mind. And if it's true for Elisha back then, guess what? It's true for us today. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We have the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of Jesus Christ living within us. And we have angels surrounding us right now and fighting our battles for us. If God could only lift the veil separating this world from the heavenly realm and we could see what was really going on, I don't think we would ever be afraid. And this brings us to our third and final point our expectations. At the end of chapter 18, before today's scripture, it seems to Elisha as if finally, finally, 
Things are going to change for the better in Israel. Finally, the people of Israel are going to abandon their idolatry and renew their covenant with God. Finally, even King Ahab and Queen Jezebel will, will surely repent of their sins and idolatry and turn to the one true God. Especially after what they've just seen God do with this fire from the sky. Finally, the kingdom of Israel is back on the right track after all these years of apostasy. And who knows, it seems likely that Elijah, Elijah himself will be the one to lead them back to the God of Israel. After all, Elijah answered God's call. He proved himself faithful and he did everything God asked. And the people responded. The future looks bright. But Elijah was wrong. <laughs> None of those things happened. <laughs> His expectations were dashed. Alcoholics Anonymous is uh, famous for one, for many things, of course, but they have a famous saying which pertains to the situation with Elijah. I love this. Expectation is a planned resentment. <laughs> Expectation is a planned resentment. Well, that's surely true in Elijah's case. Resentment is in his, now I'm the only one left speech. Self-pity is a form of resentment. And surely one part of the explanation for Elijah's response to Jezebel is his expectations. And this brings us to the most famous part of today's scripture. I'll close with this, I promise. When he's in this cave on Mount Horeb, otherwise known as Mount Sinai, where Moses received <laughs> the Ten Commandments and had some profound encounters with God, including the burning bush, um, God says in so many words, wait for me. And first comes a tremendous wind, but the Lord isn't in the wind, we're told. And then comes the earthquake, but the Lord isn't in the earthquake. And then comes this raging fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. Elijah hears what the King James famously refers to as a still, small voice. And only after that, the Lord speaks to Elijah and reveals his plans to him. Elijah no doubt expected God to reveal himself in these big, powerful, dramatic ways like wind, earthquake, and fire. And God does do that sometimes, every once in a while. In fact, in the previous chapter, God revealed himself in fire, but not here. And I think this is God's way of saying, Something like this. Elijah, you expect me to do these big and powerful and dramatic things in your life and in the world, but that's not the way I work most of the time. I usually work in very small and often imperceptible ways. And just because you can't often see the things I'm doing doesn't mean I'm not here at work doing powerful things. It also doesn't mean that I've abandoned you. Your job is to be faithful to me, to do my will, and trust me with the results. You may not be able to see what I'm up to until heaven. But in the meantime, trust me. And that's a message for us too, isn't it? Finally, please notice Elijah was healed 
of his fear, his loneliness, his anger, his depression, his self-pity. Only after God spoke to him in that still, small voice. And guess what, friends and brothers and sisters, God still speaks to us in that voice today, especially when we turn to him in his word. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.